did you get paid the same amount of money when you were at Booze versus the company that went bankrupt or what? I do remember signing the contract for Booze, like 45K. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've made it. <laughs> this is it. <laughs> How did you get the, the first Splunk gig at Accenture? Did you have to learn some new skills on the way? Was the, the interview tough? Um, the interview, it was tough. Um, just because I, I was very upfront. I said, I don't know any security. Um, so you're going to ask me questions and I'm going to tell you I don't know. Um, and that, that I can't lie about that, right? You just can't fake security. I think the really big project for me was when I finally started to lead a team. Um, I came into the team and they had a lead there already. Um, she was moving on to another project and it was a global financial client. We had a data onboarding factory. So I had a team of 10 to 15, um, I think a couple onshore, uh, most offshore. Um, and that, that was scary. This video is being brought to you by Course Careers. What's going on, guys? If you're looking to start your IT career, then check out the IT course at Course Careers, taught by none other than the great Josh Matter. I'm pretty sure you heard of him. But we all know that it could be pretty pricey getting the IT, and this course is very affordable. And also, if you don't want to pay back those student loans like I have to, <laughs> then this is the course for you. So check out the Course Careers course. My link will be in the description. Use code TEXTUAL50 in order to get $50 off of your course and get started on your IT career today. Welcome back, everyone, to episode 95 of the Textual Talk podcast. Well, I'm your host, HD. And today we have a great guest for you guys. Her name is Miss Chloe Burden. And let me read off her bio to you really quick. Chloe is a versatile and accomplished cybersecurity leader with eight years of experience specializing in security operations, SIM engineering, and security sales engineering. She's adept at managing large-scale security transformation projects end-to-end, implementing best practices, and devising innovative strategies to counter cyber risk. She's good in log analysis, threat detection, and incident response using SIM tools, notably Splunk Enterprise Security. She possesses a deep understanding of security frameworks, regulatory compliance mandates, and industry standards. She has a proven track record of building and leading cross-functional teams to achieve organizational objectives. She's exceptional in communication and the stakeholder management abilities that enable effective collaboration with technical and non-technical stakeholders, including C-level executives. She's also proficient in analyzing customer requirements, tailoring customized security solutions, and delivering impactful presentations and demos. So, Wayne, you heard that bio. She has skills. In this episode, we'll be talking about her early life, her beginning of her career, when she really got her start in her career, and also some tips and tricks on how you can become like her in your own career. With that being said, let's get into the episode, guys. Yo, so Chloe, what is your go-to karaoke song? If you had to sing karaoke right now, what song would you go to? <laughs> um, I Just Wanna by Jay-Z and Pharrell. That's uh, I feel judgment. That's, that's a that's a scapegoat word, man. Uh, what? That's one song I know all the words to. That's rare. No, no it it's very rare that I know all the words. So here we go, man. I I, was, I got so many uh, karaoke songs because see, for me, I'm like, right, if I do karaoke, I'm going all the way in with. It. I, I'm giving a performance like. One of the ones I did in the past, because it's one of like my favorite songs to sing in the car, especially back in the days I used to go in the office or something like that, uh, car yeah. car uh, concert, is uh, Beauty by Drew Hill. Oh, yeah. I'm going okay. in on Beauty. Oh, 
That's a give me too. Come Beauty. on. Um, not really. Everybody <laughs> oh, don't listen to... Think about it. We, I mean, everybody is like probably like younger as they don't know about no Drew Hill. It's fair. I like that song too. But is it a karaoke song though? I don't yeah. know. It's, it's not that hard to sing. You can get two people to sing it. Okay. Now, depending on now, I hit people with the switcheroo. Depending on where we at, I might hit them with something they respect. <laughs> I might, I might bust out singing some Backstreet Boys. You know what I'm saying? And not I want it that way. I might do mm-hmm. as long as you love me. Oh, uh, okay. Because everybody thinks, every, yeah, you know, everybody think you just know, you know, uh, what's it called. But I know all them little Backstreet Boy songs. We used to listen to that growing up. We came through the area of like you know white boy bands. We did. We did. Bye bye bye. Yeah. That'd be my go-to. Yeah, funny oh. enough, on Twitter, I think I tweeted this right when, um, matter of fact, when Threads came out, I was like, hey, I'm so ready for the white people version of Versus, so NSYNC could smoke Backstreet Boys boots. I'm ready for that. I'm ready for that. But welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 95 of the Textual Talk Podcast, where I'm your host, HD, and today we have another Miss Chloe Burton with us, and she came to rock out with us today. Um, if you're listening on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, you name it, please leave us a review. Share out the podcast if you find some value in it. And if you're watching on YouTube right now, you already know what to do, man. Hit the thumbs up button. Hit the subscribe button. Matter of fact, look, I'm going to show you right here. So a little visual. Yeah, there we go. Hit the subscribe button. But without further ado, let me go ahead and bring our guest in. Hey, Chloe, can you go ahead and introduce yourself? Burton. Um, I am a security manager at Accenture. Um, I'm happy to be here today. This is my first podcast, so um, I'm like excited and nervous all at once. I'm more excited. <laughs> so. The right place. So let's let's do like you know, kind of set the foundation of everything. I see that. Let me see if how my, good my memory is. You went to the University of Pittsburgh, right? So are you are you born and raised in Pennsylvania? No, no, I'm not. I'm from the DMV area, so Virginia. Mm-hmm. Virginia, what part? Yeah. Charlottesville. So I say that because people usually don't know. They say Charlotte, North Carolina, but no, like where <laughs> UVA is. <laughs> so okay, cool. Central Virginia. Yeah, yeah. I asked about it because I want to ask a little bit. You saw the questions I sent you, and I want to ask a little bit of a guess about. Maybe we can go like maybe that senior year of high school into. Yeah. Um, what what would you say it would be? Uh, maybe going to, to college. Let's let's talk about that. Yeah. Okay. Senior year of high school. Um, I was an athlete, and I was also a scholar. We'll say. Um, so I was very focused on basketball, track. Um, I think those were the two main at the time, and then trying to get into a good college. Um. <laughs> My parents were very pressed on me becoming a doctor. So I went to tour a lot of, um, you know, top-notch schools, I'd say. Um, but I didn't really want to be a doctor. <laughs> so I, I wound up, I'm not saying Pittsburgh was a bad place because it's actually really good for sciences. Um, but I ended up at University of Pittsburgh just because I didn't want to be at home because it was UVA or Pittsburgh. Um, UVA was down the street. Um, so I went there. They had this thing called Cathedral of Learning at the time, which I didn't know what it was. It was this really tall, like, Cathedral of Learning. And that piqued my interest. So I went. <laughs> I showed up. <laughs> uh, 
do your parents hold like professional jobs as well? Is that why they kind of push you to be in, uh, you know, the medical field? So they're not in the medical field, not even close. Um, my dad, he was IT, IT government, uh, ex-military. My mom was in the home loan industry. Um, yeah, nobody in my family is a doctor. <laughs> so they wanted me to be the first. <laughs> yeah, that did happen. <laughs> I think for like, we see people that are in the, the field, the illustrious fields, the lawyers and the doctors and whatever else, where they're probably forced to do it by family, but they really don't like it. I remember a couple of years ago back at one of my companies I worked for, I was working with a guy. He was a, I was a sock lead there and he was just a sock analyst and he came from being a lawyer. He was like, he hated it. Yeah. It's like, if, if it's not a passion, why do it? Especially medical field, like uh, that's saving lives. That's, you can't do that if you don't love it. Um, there's one thing that I tried. I'll be honest. I, I took neuroscience. I failed intramural twice. Um, so that was out of the way. Biology, I don't like plants. I couldn't do that. Um, so I ended up on psychology. Um, and I thought I wanted to be a therapist, uh, but I didn't. <laughs> so <laughs> a very interesting path. I think I was a therapist in a past life. Were you? Why? <laughs> I like to talk. I'm a good active listener at times. That's key where I say at times when I when I want to actually listen. But no, nah, I, I I say that because um, I think it helps out though. What I you know I also do with the coaching things like being able to listen, re- being relatable, and being able to just make things simple for people to understand and grasp. I have that probably like down packed to a T, and I probably get that from my mom. People always call her all the time. She's always on the phone talking. But I want to get into, so we, we, we get to college and you said you failed neuroscience twice. I want to <laughs> I want to get into, okay, what after that made you decide, hey, you know what? I'm going to get in cybersecurity. Or were you just saying, I'm just going to get like an a IT degree or something? Like what? You know, how'd that go? Yeah, it wasn't until 2013. So I graduated college in 2011. I moved back home from Pittsburgh, um, and I was still working in the, the psych field. Um, and it was just high stress, low pay. Um, I lived with my dad at the time, and I remember we had a conversation on his balcony, and he was like, come join the dark side. And the dark side to him was IT. Right? I was like, okay, like whatever. Um, so he had a connection at a small tech firm, and I got the job there. Um, I later learned that they didn't really like me. <laughs> if it wasn't for my dad, I would have gotten that job. But, you know, the stars aligned and it was a help desk type of thing. Um, so we were working with the federal agency to help them. Um, I think it was financial management tool that we built. Um, so that's how I got into it. Um, and then I, I never wanted to do security. And so, like, you can kind of tell I still wasn't there yet. I didn't really start security until 2018. I was in tech. I'll call it 2013 loosely. 2015 or so at Deloitte. Okay. Yeah, we're, we're definitely going to get into that. I saw that on your, if you saw a little bit kind of my notes, I was researching you. I was like, okay, she didn't, she didn't work for some power players, man. How, so like you see, give me a brief spiel a little bit about, do you feel like your help desk experience was important to your career? Do you feel like you wasted your time there? How do you feel about it? And I like to ask people who've done it before and where we're at in our careers now. Because it gives the people that are doing it now some hope. All you hear a lot of times is kind of a lot of people kind of like bag on help desk, which I get it. I don't like it either. 
not because of the job, but because of it's not respected. You do probably more work than everybody in the building and get paid the least. And so that's one of the things I don't like about it. But what did you take away from it? Like, how has it been able to help you climb the ranks? Because, guys, I'm going to tell you guys something. We we didn't read out for bio, but she definitely um, she's up there right now. She the big cheese. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I I learned first off customer service. Um, I think that's just a given. Um, I learned how to manage my time. I learned how to be agile. Um, I learned, well, obviously I learned some of the, the technical aspects of it, right, that I hadn't before. So I had to learn the tool or the platform that the company created. Um, um, but I, I agree, like, it's so, I hate to say it's not that respected because it is a really crucial job. And I think about it even when I call into, like, help desk now. Um, just being kind, <laughs> right. And understanding that they don't have all the answers, right. This is literally the first line. Um, and so how to escalate that upwards. So I guess something else I've learned there, right. Who to go to. Um, and I think if I'm th- looking back at it now, that probably has helped me network better. Um, cause I kind of just know where to go to. Right? Um, but it was an a amazing experience. I made some really, really great friends, um, and I think that really the foundation for me to move forward into my career in tech. Um, without that, I don't think I would have been well suited. Um, and I say that just because, you know, we'll get into kind of the Deloitte era, but I think, you know, Deloitte's an interesting place to be, right? Um, and that helped us. You, you got to do all this. You got to manage a lot. And so going into consulting as a young analyst, I was ready, you know? And that is a good segue into our next question about that first gig at that at that first big name recognition at a, a booze who's kind of been making, I guess, some splashes now with some of the contracts that they just been awarded. How was that? What was that transition like? Because I know one of my good friends, when he left from working with us at Optif, he went to booze. And then that's when he started consulting. He was telling people like, you know, the pros and cons of consulting, but I think one of the big pros is you get so much experience very fast, but you, it's not a lot of handholding. How was that? How was that for you? Um, so interesting. Booze was a short stint, but so what happened was the company I was at, they went bankrupt and booze bought them out. So I continued on what I was doing, except I moved on to the onsite. So I was working at the agency, um, you know, literally, with the contract, like I was a contractor around all the employees. Um, and that was a new experience too. Like I'm in front of the client at all times. They can walk into our office and they can yell if they want to. <laughs> they can say hi. They can bring me lunch, you know. Um, so again, that that was major. Because um, client interactions, that drives the entire consulting business. Um, it's a customer-based, client-based relationship business. Um, so it was interesting, um, but again, like much of the same, except with that interaction day to day with the client, which was fun. Again, I, I I met a lot of federal employees. I got to know the workings of how you know agencies work, and I felt cool with my badge walking into a building that people can't get into. So it was fun. Yeah, I, I see that as a as a trend for a lot of people when they have these jobs. They like to showcase their badge. I mean. For me, working for CSRA, I had my badge, but it wasn't. 
it's just like where it was out at, like a lot of people weren't over there. It's just like by a community college in the highway. It's like, it was like nothing there. Maybe if I'd have been working up there, like in a DC area, it'd been a little bit different because people kind of use that as a little flex. Oh, look at me. Like, you know, especially Silicon Valley, they do. Oh, I work at Google. I work at Meta. I work at Apple. Like, I was like, I don't care where you work. I mean, now I could probably social engineer you if I want to. So, right. So, I also want to ask you this if it's not too intrusive. For me, I've told people like my first help desk job, the first contract was 17 an hour. Then when I came on full time, it was like $19 and like 40 cents. So like rounding like $20 an hour. Did you get paid the same amount of money when you were at Booze versus the company that went bankrupt or what? No, it was a slight bump. I don't remember what. I, I was still salary at the first place. I, I don't remember what it was though, but I do remember signing the contract for booze, like 45 K. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I've made it. <laughs> this is it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Here's the thing. I think, I think one social media wasn't like it was when we were coming 10 years ago. Two, I think it's the fact that, a lot of us, I think, were a little bit more realistic in what we probably possibly expected for a first job. We were around people who were just, I think this is an issue. And it's not an economics podcast, but I've been listening to a lot of uh, Thomas Soul lately. But back when we were growing up, we were around regular people that didn't necessarily, like everybody wasn't just these high time, high paying jobs, but these people were able to survive and put food on the table, have houses for their families without having to have some type of astronomical, like crazy career. Now, fast forward to 2023 is very much different. If you don't have a job that's paying you good money, especially based on region. Like I know out here in the DFW and I know you're in the DMV area, like it's, it's, it's gotten like very expensive. Like and you have to be pushing close to 200 if you have a family really sink by yourself without even including a spouse or anything like that to hopefully take care of the family. Back then, for me, like I said, I came from making seven seventy five at Target to going to like thirty five k to forty k. I, I that was I felt like you know, come from the city I was in, that was more than everybody made in the city. So you were like, okay, cool. But I was like, once I started doing that work, I was like, nah, I need some more money. <laughs> like for real. Once you realize you can, and really what money is and what that means in terms of power and status as you continue to to excel your mindset changes like the fact that i could live off of 45k <laughs> like i couldn't imagine that right now i couldn't and i can we all could be um because I'm, I'm a single person or i'll say that for single single people um yeah i <laughs> blessed i have to say that i'll probably say that five more times but I really thought I arrived like in my little Corolla. I was pulling up, you know, like I had manual windows. I was stunting out there, you know, it, it was great <laughs> Yeah, with my no federal badge. I, I was it. I was her. <laughs> Over to CSC. And so I had a I had a bad wreck there at the beginning of the year, but I bounced back. I came put up in the parking lot, I had the brand new black uh, Mustang GT. You know, 5.0, you couldn't, you couldn't tell me nothing. 
You couldn't tell me. No, you hear me pulling up in the parking lot. You can't. You couldn't tell me nothing back then. <laughs> I wish I still had the car, but it, it was a gas guzzler. I had to get rid of it. I had to. Oh. Yeah, you stunted more than me. I, I wasn't really into cars yet because I didn't have money yet. So I realized. But. Yeah. Well, I wasn't really into cars per se, but it was like I've always been this person, and this is like a little gem for everybody listening. I've always been a person that knows, like, whatever I really manifest a thing about, I'll eventually get. So, funny enough, like, two years prior to that, in, like, my last quarter in college, I remember posting it on Facebook. I could put it up on the screen if I had to in post-production. But I was like, I posted that specific Mustang. I was looking at them. I was like, man, I want one of these. I'm going to get one. And I ended up getting one. And it's always been like that for every car. I wanted a maximum, but now I got a maximum. I wanted a... <laughs> What else did I want? I wanted a Accord. I went and got a Accord. Like so, I mean, even if I want like something super expensive, I'll get that too. But it's always I always do it within time because there's been times when I could get something I wanted but didn't need it. So that's the difference. What people do got to understand: I, you can always manifest something, but you can also get it at the wrong time. And that's one of the things you got to pay attention to as you start earning more money. You got to look at: okay, I know I can buy it, but do I need it? <laughs> and that, if you can have that mindset as you start making a lot more money, which we start to do in our careers, you'll be fine because you see people who probably make as much as us, if not more, but always either need to hold some money or need some money it's because they had bad money management and they didn't get a, a, a hold of grasp of it yet. So that's just one of the things to pay attention to. So if you're still with us right now, put that in your notebook. Trust me, it'll take you a long way. All right. So we we go from booze and Deloitte. So when you go to Deloitte, were you still doing like the consulting uh, analyst help this type of stuff, or were you finally starting to transition into more of a security focused role? Mm-hmm. So not yet. Um, so Deloitte brought me on board because so at booze and the previous company, the platform, uh, the financial management platform, was based on Oracle. And so uh, Deloitte took most of my colleagues from the company because they have an Oracle practice. Um, so we all went to that practice. Um, ironically, I never did any Oracle work <laughs> at all. Never, not once. Um, so I had actually, I lied. I had a little bit of security in there, but I didn't know it was at the time. I was doing, um, what are they? SSPs, process procedures, documentations, um, that type of work. <laughs> um, and I, I just, I hated it. I'm not gonna lie to you. Uh, documentation. And I was like, this is, is this life? Like, why am I doing this? Um, and I've recently just realized what I was doing probably like within this year that I actually was doing security way back when. Um, but while I was there, I did a mix of different things. Um, but that's when I got into Splunk. Um, and so that's, that's where my career took off. We, um, and I'll call that the tech part of, of my career. Um, I know I got introduced to Splunk when I worked at the Knock, And all we did was use it for monitoring. If stuff went down, turn red and noises were made. And that's how I got introduced to Splunk. But I didn't. That's crazy, man. Hang on. I did not know that back in 2016, when I was introduced to Splunk, that it was going to help me make as much money as I'm making now. You and me both. You and me both. Because it was, and that's the thing about Splunk was fairly new at that time too. And my that company I said was like an early adopter. They were actually in the, the payment card industry. 
And it's funny. I just really thought about that. I had that revelation when I thought about that. I said, I didn't think Splunk was going to be a tool to help me because, you know, jobs will reach out to me now just because I got Splunk on the resume. Just because. Yeah. My LinkedIn DMs are popping off of that. <laughs> so, yeah. So, with that being said, let's go to, let's, let's go to really when you, how did you get the, the first Splunk gig at Accenture, right? How, how did that go? And did you have to learn some new skills on the way? Was the, the interview tough? How was that? Because typically sometimes people have like a kind of a slow crawl there to where they kind of make that. I want to, I would, I would guess, and I'll probably let you put that in your words, but you call that to be like a leap of like job responsibility and job title. Once you went from that Deloitte position to the, the Splunk role at Accenture the first time. Yeah, for sure. Um, so at Deloitte, I was an analyst. I left as a new consultant. I came into Accenture as a consultant, which will loosely align it to call it senior. Um, and that had the security overlay. So I learned most of the Splunk skills at Deloitte. Uh, so I'll backtrack real quick with you. I accidentally went to a training for Splunk. I was a week-long training with my colleagues. I learned it. Wait, wait, wait. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's back it up. How do you accidentally go to training? Right. So my teammate was supposed to go. I forgot what happened. He couldn't make it. And they were like, hey, girl. I was like, okay. <laughs> and so I went to Jersey for a week. Um, and I just learned. Like, it was literally eight hours a day of, of Splunk crash course. And there was just Deloitte employees teaching Deloitte employees. I guess we realized there was a need in the market. And we had to train up. And there was no security to it. It was just purely Splunk admin, a little bit of architecture. Um, and then from there, I went on some projects. Um, I did more federal projects, and then I started to do some commercial projects. Um, and one in particular was very grueling, but it taught me a lot. Um, we, we were helping a client. It was uh, Black Friday, so they wanted to see store health. So we had to build massive queries in Splunk to basically just have pie circles go red, green, or yellow. Um, and then also make sure that they're colorblind, colorblind appropriate. <laughs> so it was a lot behind the scenes, but I think that project really accelerated my Splunk learning because I, I didn't know how to do that. Um, so I'm in there 12, 13, 14 hours a day on client side, just trying to figure this out with my team. Um, so yeah, so to answer your question, by the time I got to Accenture, I, I had the foundation. Um, the interview, it was tough. Um, just because I, I was very upfront. I said, I don't know any security. Um, so you're going to ask me questions and I'm going to tell you, I don't know. Um, and that, that I can't lie about that, right? You just can't fake security. Um, but they told me, we'll give you a chance. We'll teach you. We'll train you. And they did just that. Um, and so then I got in my first engagement. It was just me and one other person. Um, and, and we were doing... It was Splunk-ish, I'll say. Um, it was more middleware. Like, I don't know. It wasn't like too much Splunk involved, I'll say. I think the really big project for me was when I finally started to lead a team. Um, I came into the team and they had a lead there already. Um, she was moving on to another project and it was a global financial client. We had a data onboarding factory. So I had a team of 10 to 15, um, I think a couple onshore, uh, most offshore. Um, and that, that was scary. <laughs> um, 
I I didn't know how to manage. <laughs> I just barely <laughs> knew Splunk. Right? I think I had just gotten my architect or hadn't gotten it yet. Um, so I, people are looking at me for answers and the client just happened to be in the Virginia area. So I'm on site. So looking at me for the answers too. And then I was a consultant, right? So then um, I was playing a manager role and then our senior manager left. So it was just me. And I was like, oh gosh. <laughs> um, but you learn. You, I, I did it. And I, one day I woke up and I was like, you're the lead. Here's your confidence. Go. That's what it was. Um, Man, that's, that's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> I want to touch on something that you did, that you said when you did the, the interview for the position. And it's something that I was telling a client of mine. I've, I've been having him record his interviews and critiquing them. And one of the things I was telling him is that, you know, I could see in the interview, like you are, well, I pretty much told him it's okay to say you don't know something instead of just giving an answer that sometimes may not make sense for what they're asking you. Right. And I've told people this before, like on some of my episodes before I was saying, Hey, it's okay that you feel know everything in the interview, just be upfront with them. So the fact that you didn't waste their time kind of is one of those things where if I have people on my team, I know who knows like what you don't know, what you do know. And I know you're not going to waste a bunch of time acting like you don't know someone. You just ask the person that you need to ask for it, where we can save time and alleviate everything. I think that was, I think that's pretty good on your part to do that because you already knew how to use the tool. It's just, you have to learn the other parts of security. And so those are some of the things I actually tell people sometimes too. It's like, if you got a skill set, it's cool. Some of the things you can be taught if you already know how to use something. And I know a lot of people don't believe like they see it, but I was like, it's that part of it. And also the other part is like just settling your personality. And I could see how you were able to to get us. Oh, we like her. We're going to bring her on. So I was able to see that part of, of you too. Now, the part that was pretty cool was about you pretty much being thrown in the lines then and saying, hey, you got to lead this team. You know, it's, it's your time to shine now. You got to do this. I, I think we always grow when we're uncomfortable. Of course. And it's either fight or, as my pops would say, fight or flight. <laughs> <laughs> fight or flight. <laughs> uh, so uh, you chose to fight. So, I mean, I think, think about you now, now and how many years ago was this when, when you had to lead this team? Uh, that was 2018. So five. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Okay, yeah. I think it's funny, too, there's a lot of parallels with your career and my career. 2018 was like, even though 2017 was like when I got my first security job, I feel like 2018 was kind of where it took off because that's when I got to a company that let me grow. So I, I, I really see like some of those parallels right there. So with that being said, did the role where you were leading in, did that help you build that expertise into SecOps and SIM engineering? Um, kind of, kind of. I only say kind of because I'm sure you know, right? With data onboarding into Splunk, it's very much so a, a repetitive process um, with some slight nuances depending on the data source. Right? Um, cloud isn't syslog, um, isn't API, isn't forwarder. Um, but the different tools, did I really have to understand what they did? Not so much. I just knew that they had to be in. I knew the client needed them. Um, 
So I, I, I would say probably took maybe another year or so before I really started to fully grasp security. Um, because for a long time, it was just Splunk engineering. And my title was Splunk security consultant, but at the end of the day, I was just engineering a platform. Yeah. Uh, let's ask this question because this is a, a question sometimes asked in security interviews, especially for some analyst work. I've been asked this a couple of times. So what type of log sources did you guys have to ingest into Splunk like that they need, especially like for the security team? Yeah. Um, I won't use that client because <laughs> they, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It just it's not even about the client, it's just because they wanted everything. <laughs> like it was just everything. I think we had like three hundred sources over a certain amount of time we had to get in. So there's not three hundred security tools. Um well there probably are. But um so if I'm thinking we'll fast forward a little bit in my mind when I've actually had to think about what tools to get in, um I think I go network, EDR, cloud, um, and then I'll do the operating systems, right? Windows, Linux, what other varieties you have. Um, those, to me, those buckets are are typically priority. And most of the time they should have a subset of those. Should. Should. <laughs> oh, it, it just depends, right? But yeah, those four or five buckets yeah, I remember I had to like list them off. And the reason why I asked you that, and I'm trying to get that to the listeners, is because it's one of those ways you can also think about how do you attack answering certain questions. So if you know what type of log sources are in the sim, then you could particularly answer a question that's given to you. Because I have a slew of like, I went on, I did like a couple of different times. Like I had uh, the SOC interview uh, entry level questions. That I would ask, like I have like my YouTube, my TikTok, IG. And so occasionally people actually just comment on these things and they'll say, Oh, I'll use AD logs or whatever. And I'll say, Well, how are you gonna how you access them in case you don't have access to the AD console? And so I asked them that because I want them to realize that everything they need is gonna be in that sim. Now you're just gonna have to figure out what you're gonna do and how you're gonna uh look at it. And also, I thought I had a good question for you when it came to the different log sources. But I did have this answer too. Is like the one of the things about consulting, and so when I was at Optiv, I was part of the Fusion Center, so we had one big client, and so it kind of it was like consulting, but not really. We had one big client, but this big client has so many companies of their own, so it's like you're working with different companies and different departments. But we had a, a guy on my team who would, you know, tell them straight up, no, this don't make sense. I think that's very important. Sometimes people really, they want the contract so much, they'll do everything they say. It was like, no, you got to draw a line in the sand because typically what happens if people just want to listen to everything the client tells them, do it, and you're not taking anybody else's input into it, it's going to cause your, cause your team some grief. If you keep on telling them, oh, we need to ingest all these logs and you're throwing all these different alerts at your analysts and they're like, bruh, this don't even make sense. What a client wanted. I don't care what they wanted. This doesn't make sense. Take it out. Turn turn, turn the rule off until it's actionable or make it better. 
all those different things. Those are things that you typically run into when you don't know how to tell your client no. And that was me at a point. Yeah. Yeah. And then it can come back to bite you. There's so much information coming in, not being done correctly. Oh, how you missed this? Well, I mean, you got people doing X amount of alerts a minute and these logs are in here and we don't really need them. Uh-huh. Yep. I was there. I was there at a point. And it, I mean, you know, it spunk too before the workload model ingest was a big thing, right? So if you imagine we had that client, they wanted all these log sources and no one told them no. I wouldn't tell them no, <laughs> right? Um, and you're just going to go over your license and that's that's money out of their pocket. Um, so yeah, that that's a tough line to balance often. And I think something I still deal with to this day, um, how do you tell your client that? When they really, really want, they really think this is this is going to be it. This is going to be the source that's going to get us the visibility we don't have, and maybe, but is it? Like, have we really vetted it? Is it just because it's going to make a pretty dashboard? What are we really getting with this? Technically, some of that stuff they can just have some rules about it, and then have the analyst or whoever is working on it pivot into the actual console of that tool without having the logs in if they don't actually need it, if it's like low volume. And I was going to ask you something about, you, you said something just now. You were talking about telling them no licenses. Oh, yeah. Another of the funny, the funny things about licensing and everything else is when they want tools to be stood up because they're paying for them. Like, so we, we had the engineers that pretty much were the platform owners of all these different tools. And it was like, well, why are we using this? Like we had Phantom for the longest and we weren't using it. And it was like, well, we don't have this in place in your environment and this and this. Well, we want to use it because we're paying all this money for it. So you make you, you have to sometimes just rush and put something out there just because. So it got to a point where they'll say, hey, guys, we're going to stop using Phantom and go back to Splunk. Like it's a whole bunch of stuff. Like I think consulting stories would definitely, definitely make a good series where I just talk to different consultants. They talk about funny stuff they did with their clients. Like that'd be pretty cool. It's interesting. It's a very fun world. I tell folks, I'm like, what do you do? I was like, I tell, I tell the time on your watch to you, right? That's kind of how I describe it. And, you know, you'll ask me, is it half past five? Well, it kind of looks like that. Um, but it depends. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, how I imagine it. Um, because at the end of the day, can you do exactly what I'm doing? Sure. Sure, you could, but I'm here to accelerate that for you and, and then ultimately to advise you on how to best do that. And what's the best watch? Is it analog? Is it digital? You know what brand is going to be good for you? It's a fun field. So at a high level, can you tell us about a large scale security transformation project you managed from start to finish? What were some of the challenges that you faced doing that? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so I've typically just come in as I've been a build, right? I have build teams. So build team will hand it off to the run team, which is usually the, the MSSP or the SOC. Um, so my first go around was with um, a retail client a year or two ago. Um, and I was the one that was presenting to the client, did the proposal, talked to the CISO, um, worked with the team, staffed the team, did the financials. Um, so I was end to end, right? And then I put the team together and then led the team. So it was more oversight 
Um, so in the consulting world, we, we have a day job, we have side jobs, um, and then some other fun stuff on the side, right? Um, so I had a team of three to four uh, of the build. And so essentially, we were having to transform um, their sim platform, which was Splunk. Um, so we had um, we had to assess it. We had to get data sources in. We were going to do use cases, but we, we handed it off to the run. Um, and then we had recommendations on next steps for them. So at this time, Splunk was really touting that workload model. Um, so And we felt they would be a good candidate for that. So a piece of, um, you know, what I had to do was talk with you know, leadership about, you know, what does it look like moving forward for y'all? Um, I guess it's important to note they had gone through a ransomware. So um, they desperately needed to make sure that their SIM platform was in place. That was a recommendation from um, the Cypher team that came in and helped them. Um, so I think it was about three months, um, led the team through that. Uh, and then we finally wrapped up and we wanted to extend. Um, but unfortunately, um, we weren't able to do that. Um, they went to a different tool, which is which is fine. Um, you know, I had to work through advising them on thinking about what that's going to do. We um, a sim is a sim, but you know, a different tool is a different tool too. So you know, it's not always going to be apples to apples. Um, but that engagement really tested my ability to to be a leader, um, to have executive presence. Um, I had to learn how to say no. I had to learn how to manage a junior team. Um, I had to be comfortable letting go of the fact that I, I don't know everything and leaning on these folks and then ensuring that I empowered them through this. Um, because I, I told some of the members, like, I want you to have this opportunity because it doesn't come around all the time that you can just jump into an engagement with a, a, a pretty high profile client um, and go through this and not have the, what we would consider the proper skills at the moment. But I think a part of who I am is just everybody needs a chance. I was given a chance. Um, so it was a lot of ups and downs. The client was really nice. Um, they understood they needed help. Um, but they were really nice to the point of it was difficult because they always were saying yes. So it's kind of like the opposite of when they're giving that pushback of no. It's, yeah, sure, go for it. Whatever you want to do. I'm like, are you sure? <laughs> like, do you believe me? Like, I can tell you to do whatever. And you're like, yeah, great. Um, so that was an interesting challenge in itself. Um, and I think just having to manage a team plus I was tasked elsewhere. Um, that was tough. It was a very tough three months and then having a, a life right on the outside world. Um, but we did it. Um, I'm, I was super proud and the client was very thankful. Um, again, they, they went to a different tool. So it was kind of like three months for what? But yeah, it was good. I feel like that different tool is really getting to you. You're like, all this work and y'all switched. <laughs> That's what, what tool did they go to? It's Sentinel. Why did I, you know, it's funny. I was thinking it was Sentinel. And then mm -hmm. in my mind, I was like, man, she can't be that mad over Sentinel. Maybe they went to Q Radar or something. <laughs> yeah, no, I would have been irate. I wasn't mad. It, you know, it's, not something that's bad. It just, sometimes when you look back at it, it, it just sucks, right? Like we took that time. Um, but at the end of the day, what's right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, fine. And that's why I mean, I did it, <laughs> but yeah, so it was okay. As long as they're good. And that's one of the things too, right? Everybody can't afford Splunk. I think that's one of those those good like one of those hard things to for uh, some people to understand. It's like everybody can't uh, afford Splunk. 
everybody can't even get the Splunk training. But if you do want to get affordable Splunk training, shameless plug right here for my guy, Kenneth Ellison at ECA. Go check him out. He's giving you guys affordable Splunk training that's much cheaper than what you'll get on Splunk's actual site. Right. Yeah. I only say that because somebody was mentioning some free training about being uh, a SOC analyst and they threw in Splunk Fundamentals certification, which I was like, okay, I mean, it shows you how to use Splunk, but it's definitely not going to show you how to be a SOC analyst, to be totally honest. They had that defensive one. They had that defensive analyst one that technically you can take the beta next week at the Splunk Conf, but my Splunk power user and all that kind of stuff, like knowledge is so rusty, I'm not even going to bother to do it. <laughs> it really is. Um, from a, a manager's standpoint, what type of strategies and best practices have you put in place to reduce cyber risk? Um, so for my, my clients, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'll give you a very consulting answer. I mean, it depends. Uh, <laughs> it, it depends. It depends on obviously industry need. Um, I'm trying to think of something that's common across the board. And this could be anything. This could be from things that need to be implemented in Splunk, SOAR, something procedural, any anything. Yeah. Um, I guess I'll tap into what I previously said I hated, which documentation. Um, and I say that in the respect of a governance and a type of framework around your platform. That's something I learned... I guess a couple years ago with the client um, put together a governance framework around Splunk for them. So what's the process of getting a data source in? What's the process of creating a use case, the maintenance, the architecture, like all these things that I think as engineers and, and technical folks, we will take for granted sometimes because in consulting, right? We, we get up and we go three months, two months, we're gone. Somebody has to come in and, and figure out what you've, you've left them. Um, but oftentimes I see process breakdowns and that is, is crucial. Um, like I think about this in a sense of if I want to get a data source in and, you know, it's a critical source, maybe I have a week to do it, but I have no process that's, it's never going to get done. And then what happens if we don't have that visibility, right? So just the downstream dependencies um, and you'd be surprised that, pretty much all the clients I've worked with, they don't have that. They don't have any type of structure to what they're doing. Um, and it just causes more chaos. There's not a focus. If you don't have focus, then how do you do security? Um, so yeah, that's, I, 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 when I come into a new project, especially nowadays, that's, that's what I'll bring to the table. Um, and I've, I've created some documentation and, you know, assets and accelerators that are, that come with me. Um, and most of the time it's well-received, right? Um, sometimes it's tough to actually implement and go through with it just because we have to do the build part of it. Um, but I, I think that's so critical. Um, and I, I, I can't emphasize enough having processes in place for not just your SIM platform, but I think any platform in general for security. 
about it. And not to mention, uh, I remember in grad school, we did this project and it was, uh, what's the enterprise architecture? I forgot what, what class it was, but it was about how to implement change in uh, a company and how you have to give get buy-in from like the people at the top so everyone else will follow. And that's one of the hardest things to do when you come into a new environment. Like even now, I think I'm about to be on month six at the new, at this new company. And, you know, we're going over all of us, like the three new people, they put all three new people on like on the same shift, uh, the swing shift. So we're doing different tabletops of how we do incident response and all this other stuff. And if you don't have those things in place, then, hey, for me, every time I come into an environment, I'm always looking, okay, how many um, notables are we actually escalating? What are close positives? What are we close with the same closed nodes? I'm always looking at that stuff because I used to do QA for our analysts at Optive. And as boring as it is, it's pivotal. This helps you potentially, possibly not get breached. Possibly. Just because you can start saying who's doing this this right, who's doing it wrong. And I've experienced what happens when you had the same clothes coats all over and over again. You're going to get popped. It's not an if, it's a when. But hopefully you can contain it to where it's not widespread and you make the news. <laughs> it's It seems so simple. And, and, I mean, you talk about QA. I didn't realize how important that was until recently either, but you're absolutely right. Um, and I, yeah. And I, I think sometimes QA could come across as, you know, we're trying to call out the the weakest link or, you know, what are you doing over there with your time? It's not really about that. I, I think I, I think about it in the aspect of we're trying to improve me. Um, and, and learning from every little mistake is is a good thing in this in this industry, um, because without those, then then what? How do we know what is actually not good? Um, I think we we live in the space of the anomalies, right? And what's off and what's different. So we don't know that. You know, it's a little difficult for us to do our job. Um, yeah, I think we used to do our psychologists like a little. I would do it like secretly or I would try to find like stuff they did good and bad. So it went like, it's just all bad. But that part of being elite was also pretty cool. Cause I still was, I still knew just from occasionally I wasn't eyes on glass, but I was like the escalation point. I would know what we still were dealing with and it made it easy to speak to in meetings. And I think that's one of those critical things too. It's like, that that buffer between the other analysts and the lead and then the management. I think that's a, a crucial role. It's like their eyes and ears right there on the field. And sometimes if you're not doing that stuff actively and you're working on all this administrative and client stuff, you could possibly miss some things. Uh, that's some, one of the things that I, I learned in my career. Yeah. We're all human. It's okay. Until it's not. <laughs> Until you get popped. But... <laughs> it's it's okay like and i think that's obviously you know where automation comes into play but um we're, we're gonna make mistakes and it, you can't be so scared to make them i um but again it's you know dependent on how you make them how big it is but <laughs> it's okay 
So what type of security frameworks and industry strength, uh, industry standards <laughs> do you have experience working with? And especially like you were saying, when it comes to, you know, to, to a SIM, right? We know that for certain compliance standards, certain logs have to be in place, certain alerting has to be in place to appease whatever compliance that the company needs to fit in based on the industry standards they're in. Uh, which ones are you familiar with or, or which ones do you see that people maybe should learn so they could make sure they always have a job or at least attempt to? Yeah, sure. Um, I'll think about it. Some regulatory, um, some of the common ones like PCI, um, HIPAA, SOX. Um, I've had exposure. Um, I think HIPAA and PCI, I, I probably understand a bit more. SOX is, is still iffy. Um, and if I'm thinking about like security framework, MITRE. Uh, I love MITRE. <laughs> um, not a plug at all. I just really do. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I know like Cyber Kill Shade and, and some of the other ones, but for me, MITRE makes sense. For someone that doesn't have a formal security training background, um, and just being thrown into, again, another engagement where I had to map use cases to MITRE, um, that was everything for me. I understood so much. And I, I, I anchor on that. And again, as I continue forward in my different engagements, I use that. I come in and it helps me understand where the client is. You know, What are you actually seeing? What's in your environment? Where are your gaps? Um, and then try to help you remediate that. Whether that's sources, whether that's having to get new tooling, whether that's use cases. And some of that doesn't have to be just security tooling either, right? Some of your policies at the organization, um, you know, how are those? We, um, and I guess I'll throw in the NIST CSF. I've, I've done a stint there too with, with an audit on that, um, which is also great. I, I think for the purposes of Across the board, NIST CSF is really good to kind of lay a good foundation. But if you're really looking into some of those factors and what they're doing and how they move and manipulate, MITRE is, is my go-to. I definitely agree with you because that's one of the ways people can understand attacks. Especially if you are more of an entry-level person or have much experience in security, and you need help maybe conveying how to answer something. MITRE has all the answers. Just go through and look through MITRE. Research some of these recent security breaches and things that may happen. Just look it up and just start getting some knowledge there. And that can help you as well when it comes to interviewing. One thing that I did not ask you, because we talked about it early on when you got the, the 45K salary, we didn't talk about that jump to doing Splunk. We we didn't we didn't talk about that jump, right? Because that there's what uh what is my guy? What did Chris Cochran say? There's riches in the niches. Yeah, yeah. Splunk is Splunk is a, a is a niche. Like, let's. How was that jump? Like, were were you uh, were you walking around like Mason and Diddy? Were you walking around like Mason Diddy? Yes, yes. Um, so I think it was from Boost to Deloitte. I want to say it was probably like a forty k increase, thirty to forty. Um. And then to Accenture, I believe it was 110. I believe it was 110 with the sign-on bonus. 
or maybe it was 100 with the sign on bonus of 10, something like that. So six figures, <laughs> you know, what everybody wants to hear. Um, I, that was, I'll be honest, I got it. I got the sign on bonus and I went to a Wizards game and I sat uh, not courtside, but kind of courtside and then like had a little sweet in the back. And I said the Ritz, <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, I, I did a little something um, and then realized I had more bills. <laughs> so that quickly ended, but it was a, a pretty major jump. Um, that, that was a great day for me to, to be able to say six figures, which everybody loves to say, right? Um, I could say it. I, <laughs> yes, that part. <laughs> uh, I feel you on that. That's that's how I felt when I went from what I go from went from like close to fifty to when I went to I think once I went to McAfee, I almost got like a roll. I got more than a thirty thousand dollar increase because I had base was like uh, twenty eight thousand. Then I had my bonuses. So it was like I think I was like seventy five TC. You could tell me nothing then. I could I could do wherever I wanted, <laughs> and then it, it started only going up from from there. And uh, Optive was cool because I was making more money, and then Optive had they built into our contracts. They had shift differential, so it didn't matter what shift you worked, you got that. And then if you worked the holiday, they would give you holiday pay. So, and you know, on the sock, you're not doing that much work on the holiday. So we was volunteering. Yeah, hey, I work. I, all you, I just had your laptop open. You might get one alert the whole day. I was like, oh yeah, but Black Friday and, and Thanksgiving, I was doing that. I was like, I'm gonna get this easy money, man. <laughs> but yeah, I didn't see the really big jump though until well, I lied. Before I left Optive, I had got a little jump because I. This is the thing I probably haven't said in an episode in a while. But one of the things you can do if you feel like you're underpaid at work, this is for my listeners and audience. You can ask them to do a, a comp adjustment or assess your comp to see if you are getting what you should be paid based on market research. A lot of times they'll look at your job title. They may ask you uh, how much schooling did you finish or years of experience, yada, yada, yada. And then they'll look at it and they'll say, oh, okay. So right before I left Optiv, I did a comp adjustment and they finally pushed my base up to, what was it? One, I think it's like 105 or something like that. Cause I was already like getting like 90 something. But then once I left there, my big jump happened when I went to Goldman Sachs. Like when I got in finance, I started getting bigger jumps because it was it was easy to do. So I had went from that one, I think with a bonus, which OptiDenars get the bonus, that would have put me at like one low key, it would probably put me at 115. I went from there to one, what was it, 165 or something at uh, Goldman Sachs. And Goldman Sachs also had the guarantee bonus the first year. So I got my first <laughs> big bonus last year in 2022. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Man, no, I had, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a girl dad. So, you know, just getting stuff for them and just doing whatever. I think I um, went somewhere for my birthday for the most part, but nah. then this year I did, I did the same thing. I was able to get like a, a bonus from JP Morgan and then I also got my sign on and bonus from the new company. So I've learned some stuff on the way. And the good thing is now with our, our skill sets, there are always companies willing to pay more as well because the knowledge that you get, everybody doesn't have. So all people really got to do is just put their head down and put the experience in. Now, granted, I also tell people they can 
because of inflation and stuff like that, like six figures, you can get it faster now. But a lot of people aren't ready for it because we talked about in the beginning how they, they can't even manage the money they got now. How are they going to manage six figures? And that's one of the things people got to ask themselves. It's not really six figures either. And after taxes, like you said, you're not making that. I think once I realized that the goal became, I want to make six figures after taxes be, and not just a hundred K I want to make more than that after taxes. Um, I'm glad you said that. that. That's definitely me with the business and the branding and all the other stuff I'm really trying to do. Cause Hey, you just got to, cause they take out too much, too many taxes. <laughs> Don't even want to talk about it. They get taxes, we get taxed as much as people make in a year, but what what type of like so the people that that are wanting to come into this industry now, right? Or if they say they want to do, hey, I want to do what Miss Chloe does. What would they need to do? Like, what skills do you think would be important for them to do your role? Soft skills. Um, I'll teach you, and I'm sure a company will tell you. I'll teach you the tech stuff. I'll teach you the what we'll call them hard versus soft. Um, but like I said, right at the help desk job, the customer service, the time management, um, being able to, to, to network and know where to go for, for help. Those things get lost in the sauce far too often. And speaking as a manager that staffs teams, when I do staff teams, I look for folks that are able to do that. I look for folks that are good communicators. Um, and it sounds really cliche, but it's very important. Um, and I'll work with you on those strengths. And I think about a time I had a consultant. He's a great talker, like amazing. <laughs> he, he convinced me of a lot of things. I was like, wait, what? Did we do that? I was like, okay. Um, but technically it wasn't as strong. But I was like, that's okay. Right? We'll work through that. And we sure did. Right? We've had sessions on the side. We'll stay up late and do it together. Get up early. Um, but some of those soft skills that you just need to come to the table with and um, because you have to have a presence because again, if I'm working with you to tell you what time it is on your watch, you know, there's a proximity that I might get to if it's physical, right. Or even kind of virtual, that virtual proximity I'm getting with you, you know, how I'm talking to you, my body language towards you, the engagement with you, I have to establish trust in a rapport with you because if I don't have that, why would you listen to me? Like, Henry, if I go in here and I don't trust you, like, I'm like, why are you asking me that question? You know, I don't want to tell you my salary. Okay, next. Eight. So all of those things are, to me, way more beneficial than becoming a spunk architect. Well, still do it if you want to, right? <laughs> there's there's nothing wrong with it. But if you can learn all the technical, but you can't talk about it, you can't talk to it, you can't bring it upwards to business level or to executive level, you're going to kind of be stuck in in a space, right? You're going to kind of just get labeled the person that's just going to do the tech, um, which is great. You can do that and you can move up. Um, but I think, and I tell folks all the time, it's a superpower for me to be able to do both. I can get on the keyboard with you, but then I can also bring it up. I can present it to you. I can talk to you about it. I can talk to the C-level about it. Um, so those soft skills, you, you've just, you've got to come with some, if not, all me. Yeah. I think that was one of the things, those are some of the things that people neglect that they don't think that are important, but you just be surprised at who would just want you to come on just because they like you and who, who you interact with. Like I remember before I left GS, 
I was getting a lot of good reviews from different managers and stuff like that when they were interacting with me when we were working on a project. We were working on, they had like an internal ticketing system that they had used. Why? I don't know. It cost more money <laughs> to upkeep than us finally moving over to ServiceNow and then their security module. And so I was helping with that. And um, I think one of the biggest things, like you see in most industries, phishing. So uh, that was our first project working on, hey, when somebody does report fish, it automatically comes into the, uh, it also automatically makes an incident. So that's one of the first things we worked on. Funny enough, we were working with KPMG on that. <laughs> I know, I didn't even bring it up. I was like, wait, so we'll be talking all day about all this stuff. So you gave them kind of like the blueprint of, of, you know, of course, using the soft skills, but really quickly on hard skills, maybe if they don't want to take as long as a time to get to where they need to be, what are some things like they possibly could learn like right now, maybe on their own that will help them basically be able to do something with Splunk, whether it's an architect role, whether it's engineering, whether, you know, they're doing like endless type of work, what could they learn? It's a really good question. I don't think I've ever been asked that. Um, huh. I guess what I would say is get the free demo and just play around with it. That That's kind of bland answer. Um, I'm trying to think of something outside that would help. Help you land, right? And this is one of the ways I help clients. Let's say, for instance, a person came and ask you, because I teach, I teach them to do this. I say, hey, let's find some people on LinkedIn that got the job titles you want. And let's try to reach out to them and talk to them. Let's ask them what their day-to-day is. And, you know, them asking you what their day-to-day is, they can say, hey, you know, so based on your day-to-day, what are some things I should learn on my own? And how would I replicate these things on my own type of home lab, my own projects, right? So it's I know it's going to be hard for them to replicate some of the stuff that you do. But what is something like... Of course, like they can onboard their own logs, you know, they can make up a fictional company and, and they have different log sites. Like I have one I found for clients called Sec Repo, where you can just find these logs and you can onboard them and do other different things with them. So I guess some of the lines a lot like that, like maybe, hey, should they learn how to be a power user uh, at Splunk Admin? Should they understand like, Maybe some networking fundamentals, some security fundamentals, something about databases, you know, whatever, some stuff like that. If they're going to go, like, maybe they want to do a little bit more consulting where they have to help out more with Splunk. Yeah. Um, I think if you can understand the CLI of Windows and or Linux, that's helpful. Um. And I say that with the hesitancy only because things are shifting to the cloud so much that I rarely have to architect an environment from scratch. Um, shout out to the SaaS platforms. That's amazing. Um, but what I've realized that can bleed into other aspects of security, which I didn't realize beforehand Um once I started to feel comfortable on the Linux CLI and then I realized, okay, I can utilize this across other like tools. I can, 
uh, utilize it across other like investigations. Um, I can start to configure other things. Uh, and you can, I guess, even like on a Mac too, you can get on a terminal fairly easy and you can do that on your windows computer too. just start to mess around with your, your files and your structures. Um, and kind of where your data is residing, uh, because that that goes outside of just the sim. Um, yeah, and outside of that, it's you know tinker around. Ink. I, I still tinker around all the time, um, even if it's just on my my phone, you know, in settings and trying to figure out things. Just I'm very much so open up the hood and figure out how it's working. Um, so it's maybe working that that muscle in your brain of being able to, to break down and build up and, and problem solve, which you can do anyhow, anyway. Okay, cool. So we got two last questions. Number one, uh, are y'all hiring? <laughs> I'm trying to get you some more, trying to get you some referral money. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, we, I want to say no, um, but I want to say potentially. Um, yeah, we are expanding. There's some, there's some work that we're expanding into that we might. Um, I'll let you know for sure, obviously, um, and anyone else, but it never hurts just to ask. Um, because I've asked myself, right? People have reached out to me and, you know, I'll ask the question. They'll tell me no, but at least you're, you're on file, right? And I remember you and they remember you. So. Um, last thing is, you know, what'll be three things you want to leave the guests with today? And it doesn't have to even be tech specific. It just be three things that you, you use in your life. Or t- you know, you want them to take away from this conversation. Sure. Um, be humble. Uh, uh, I have to remember that every day where you came from. Um, it, it grounds me. Um, and kind of like you recently, I've started to manifest. <laughs> I didn't really know the power in that. Um, manifest and those affirmations, which is another thing I didn't really believe in. Um, but telling yourself, you know, you are worthy. You are here for a reason. Um, I'm, I'm working through that personally. Um, and make sure you, you enjoy what you do. Uh, I would probably not be doing what I am today if I didn't enjoy waking up and, and walking up to my office and, you know, doing this. Um, if you don't enjoy it, just don't. Um, so yeah, those are my, those are my three things. Probably three things, especially touching on enjoying what you do. Cause a lot of people don't, they do it for the wrong reasons and burn out and, that's one of the causes of burnout. You're just doing it for the money. And it's only so much money is going to keep you going. It's got to be some a little bit more intrinsic to keep you going. Yeah, that's real. That's real. And I, I want to tell you one last thing is you're talking about manifesting cars earlier. I didn't tell you. I want a baby blue Range Rover. <laughs> Don't ask why. A Carolina blue. I'm sorry, not a Carolina blue. I manifested that. I didn't get it, <laughs> but I did get a white one. <laughs> so... There we go. I'll leave you with that. So manifestation is real, even if I didn't really believe in it at a point. Um, I guess I was doing it somehow, some way. So Yeah, definitely, definitely. No. Well, guys, I appreciate you guys for tuning in today. This has been another episode of Textual Talk. Uh, if you want to watch this, like I said, 
with no ads, make sure you tune into the Patreon. If not, you'll be seeing this on Monday or listening to it on a Saturday. But uh, like I always say, guys, until next time, let's stay textual. It's your boy HD, and we are out.